You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Amen. Thank you, Adam. Um, Well, hey, friends, good to see you. Mistakes, the mistakes that we make are uh, serious things. And somebody told me one time that about our mistakes is that our mistakes can either uh, destroy us, they can define us, or ultimately they can strengthen us. And so in preparation for this sermon, um, I was thinking a lot, um, not in a condemning way about the mistakes that I've made in my life, and I think I've made a lot of them, probably not all of them, because I still have a lot more time to live to make more mistakes, but I've made um, marital mistakes, I've made family mistakes, I've made money mistakes, I've made leadership mistakes, I've made ministry mistakes, I've made a ton of mistakes, and maybe you have too, I'm thinking you probably have. Um, and another smart person that I heard one time said that uh, smart people learn from their own mistakes, and then smarter people learn from the mistakes of others. And so I was thinking about that as a backdrop to this prayer series because uh, today we get to study the life of a man uh, who, in the midst of trying to live righteously and pray honestly, makes a pretty profound mistake. And uh, that's Jeremiah. And so what I want to do today is I want to learn a little bit about Jeremiah his honest pursuit of God, and then also see this mistake that he makes, and for us as a church, try to consider what it means for us as we try to grow this prayer muscle ourselves. And so we'll be in Jeremiah chapter 15, verses 15 through 19. Again, Jeremiah 15, 15 through 19. Did Jeremiah's friends call him Jerry? You don't know, and neither do I. It's very speculative. I don't know how that breaks down in the Hebrew either, but I digress. Jeremiah 15, chapter 15, chapter 15, verse 15 is what I'm trying to say. Here is the prayer. O Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake, I bear reproach. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you. And you shall stand before me if you utter what is precious and not what is worthless. You shall be as my mouth and they shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. Okay, let me give you a little bit of backstory about what's happening I think we'll immediately find sympathy for Jeremiah. Who is Jeremiah? A priest alive in the latter days of Israel's great kingdom. Uh, The latter days, like the 11th hour kind of days. And he's a priest and he's called 
set apart by God to be a prophet to do exactly what? Well, to call out Israel's elite over and over and over ad nauseum only to hear them not agree or accept a word that he says. So God sets him apart in a singular kind of way to tell Israel's leadership that they're really bad because they're really bad. Uh, They are uh, preaching a false gospel. They're telling everybody that basically sin doesn't matter. So uh, peace, peace, when there is no peace is Jeremiah's proclamation. You're telling everybody that everything's okay, that they can do whatever they want, that they are what they feel, and you're not holding them to any kind of standard. Uh, There is horrible social injustice happening, namely towards people uh, who are historically marginalized, widows, orphans. And then as the trifecta, all or many of the Canaanite practices, uh, including child sacrifice, has found its way into the culture, into the courts of Israel. And the leaders are fat and happy, and they're dumb, and they're not doing anything according to God's word. And so God, in a very singular way, is going to raise up Jeremiah to call them out for their failure to lead Israel. And that is his call, and that is what he does all the time, and he is increasingly not liked for that. It's a very harrowing, difficult job to think about, being Jeremiah, being Israel's lone prophet, but that's exactly what he is called to do. And he's gotten to the point where he's lamenting of his own life. We see that in verse 10 of chapter 15. He says, Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. And so what is he saying in his prayer? He's saying, Lord, you know, remember, visit me and take vengeance on my my persecutors and your forbearance. Please don't take me away and know that for your sake I bear reproach. Jeremiah, in a very real way, is bearing the reproach of telling Israel's leaders hard things and them not liking what he has to say and him being persecuted as a result. And so he is finding himself isolated and lonely and in a very dark place. Jeremiah is emotionally exhausted. And up to this point, he's praying a very beautiful thing. What do I mean by that? Um, Some of us have a hard time with what to do with our anxieties, our complaints, our pain points. Uh, While some of us in the room might be over-complainers, not going to name anybody, okay? But some of us on the other side of that might actually be like under-complainers. And so I think about me and the fact that maybe the greatest influence on my life was my grandpa, who was a World War II vet, who lived through the Great Depression and jumped out of airplanes in World War II and helped to free Nazi concentration camps and didn't really tell anybody about that. Uh, But he lived his life kind of towards perpetual gratitude, and the thing that you weren't ever going to do around him and get away with it was complain about anything, right? You just weren't going to complain And so I'm by and large grateful for that because he helped me in a a real way, like think about first world problems. But maybe the underbelly to that is in the scriptures, we have this beautiful invitation to bring our burdens to God. Like we can, and, and it's actually called a lament and Jeremiah himself wrote a whole book of them. They're called lamentations. 
I mean, and these are, guys, they're chock full. They're everywhere in the Bible. I want to look at one really quick in Psalm 142, just to briefly highlight this. It will be behind me. This is from David. This is a prayer. This is a song. These are the scriptures. The Holy Spirit inspired these. These are from the mouth of God. And listen how David prays and teaches us to pray as a model. You ready for this? He says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way and the path where I walk. They've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there's none who take notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you're my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Do you see what he's doing? He's taking the liberty to speak very honestly honestly and very candidly with God about the very real burdens that he's feeling. And God is not only okay with this in the scriptures, he actually invites this in the scriptures. Because he's a merciful and gracious father, he loves to actually hear the burdens that we carry. That's why Peter will say, cast your anxieties unto the Lord. So the things that you're burdened by, the pain points that you're dealing with, the lingering shame that you carry, it's not just okay to bring that to God. God welcomes that as a kind of sanctification and growing in relationship. And that is exactly what Jeremiah is doing to this point, and he hasn't made a mistake yet. He is living in the beauty of being able to complain righteously before God with hard things in mind. And we get further into his appeal, chapter 16. Sorry, verse 16. I keep saying chapter and verse. I'm an Aggie, forgive me. We just get things confused all the time. Um, Okay, verse 16. Okay. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. And then he asked this question, guys, listen to how honest this is. Why is my pain unceasing? Why is my wound incurable? It's refusing to be healed. Do you see what he says starting off in verse 16? He's like, this started off amazing. It started off amazing. Like your words, they were sweet to me and I ate them. And it reminded me candidly, of my conversion, of me coming to faith, eighth grade, Plymouth Park Baptist Church. I went into the youth group back then in the 90s, heard the gospel in a way I had never heard the gospel, had a Christian foundation, a Catholic foundation, but there was something about the way that the youth pastor talked about grace through faith, and I heard, and everything changed. Everything changed. And I remember coming alive to the scriptures. I remember wanting to study scriptures. I remember wanting to know God, to have a relationship with God. Everything changed. And I'm I'm thinking about that because I'm thinking about in that moment, in that moment, if God or somebody would, would have sat down and met with me and said, okay, you don't know this yet, but you're gonna be called to ministry in a few years. And you're actually kind of like, kind of gonna do this for a living. And then 
there are going to be a handful of things that happen to you in ministry that won't mirror Jeremiah's life per se, but are going to be really hard ministry things. And you're going to have to endure some really hard things in ministry. I probably in eighth grade would have said, thanks, but uh, I'll just be a deacon and like double tithe, you know, like sit in the back of the, you know, maybe I'll just, you know, put me on a committee or something, right? And so I resonate a little bit with Jeremiah to go, like, I remember the beginning. I remember the call. I remember the excitement. I remember the promise. I remember looking forward before I was tested. And I remember how sweet it was, how convincing it was, how real you were to me. And I think that's what Jeremiah is doing. He's saying, I remember when you spoke to me and I remember when I said yes. And I remembered the promises, promises that Jeremiah would build as he uprooted. But he keeps going. He says, I did everything you asked of me. And then in verse 16, going into 17, he's like, I I didn't join the fools. Like there were all these dumb things happening and I was the one going in there trying to represent you. And in verse 17, especially, he's like, this cost me everything. It cost me my emotional health, my sanity, my well-being. It cost me friendships. It cost me everything. And he's right. He's absolutely right. Jeremiah is not speaking ill here. What God asked him to do happened to him. And he's lonely and he's isolated from telling leaders and authority hard things that they will not hear. And when you call out people for pride, guys, pride is like the carbon monoxide of sin. One person said, it's the thing you don't know that's there. Prideful people don't know they're prideful. They have to humble themselves to actually admit that there's the possibility of pride. And he's trying to call it out. And these people are like, get this dude out of here. And he is emotionally exhausted and probably spiritually depressed at this point. And he says in 18b, now the pain won't go away. Now the pain will not heal up. And he's bringing an honest, beautiful lament before God. I feel like we need to take a step back and ask a couple questions about what's true. The first question. Jeremiah is at this point saying true things. He is speaking the truth. He has an extraordinarily difficult assignment and he has, by and large, been faithful to what God has asked of him. I would dare say his assignment is harder than any assignment that any of us have ever had from God in this room. If you would like to make an argument, come find me after the service. I'd be wildly entertained. But Jeremiah calling out Israel's elite and telling them that Babylon's about to come and completely obliterate them while they get exiled. I mean, five chapters from now, he's going to get beat up. We're not even there yet. I mean, this is a hard, hard life. And in Jeremiah's appeal, to this point, he's actually saying true things. What you've asked me to do is extraordinarily hard. And I think we can all agree that it is So that's probably the true gospel. Here's where the false gospel begins to creep in. And maybe you're already picking up on it. Jeremiah is also starting to believe a lie that because of his faithfulness and commitment to God, 
that his circumstances in the long run are supposed to bend towards his favor. And that's the lie that he begins to believe. He begins to believe that God owes him circumstances that bend towards his favor and not away from his favor. And that's where things start to break down. In his life, and I think that's where things start to break down for us too, because the 2022 application of this is right in front of us. I'm thinking about our singles. Guys, we're a majority single church. Like the fact that you guys are members here, attend here is beautiful. We love, we are so uh, thrilled to have so many young single people as part of our membership. Like I, I just, what a privilege, and I mean that. This isn't in my notes. Like what a privilege it is to be your pastor and get to lead you in this season of your life. Um, and, um, you know, people ask us all the time, like how do so many singles come to your church? And, you know, really outside of my good looks, I don't know the answer to that question. But it really is a privilege getting to walk with you in this season. And I know because I hear from so many of you guys that um, in a culture where people are coming increasingly averse to Christianity, for you to follow Christ and to hold on to this standard of uh, sexual ethics is an increasingly difficult thing. I, I would say much more challenging even 20 years ago when I met my wife, which means I feel your burden, but I really don't feel your burden. You know, so I'm, I'm not, that's not a humble brag. I'm just trying to say I, I don't real-time understand the burden that so many of y'all are going through. What I know is there are so many godly, wonderful men and women in this church who have a commitment to Christianity, but that Christianity means that you're holding on to a vision of sexuality, and you're holding on to a vision of sexual ethics, and you're holding on to the promise of relationship that may or may not come. And that's a really, really hard thing. So, of course, the temptation is to go, well, what if I missionary date, right? What if I just find somebody and God can do a work of redemption and everything will end up okay? Or what if I just lower my standards to the point that I can just find this kind of thing that I want? And if I do, maybe I can reconcile it somehow with what the scriptures so clearly say about the way that I'm supposed to live. And it's a very real temptation, amidst the loneliness of you making your commitment to not experience the things that you would like to experience. And I can't solve any problems for you other than to say that it's a very beautiful thing to lament and to pray for and to hope in and to be encouraged by God's faithfulness around us. I think about our working men, working women in the room, which is most of us are young professionals and what it means to follow Christ in this day and age in the business world. Maybe it means that for you to be clear in public about what you believe means that you're maybe not gonna get a promotion because you're gonna be labeled as that guy or that gal and there's just something that marks you and you just are in a weird way uh, perceived as against the culture of your company. And maybe it means that your commitment to Christianity and what it means means that you're not gonna be promoted the way you would like to be promoted. Maybe it just means in this in incessant Dallas work culture where all we do is work, 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 that even you doing something like Sabbathing is now really foreign and may be seen as weird or in opposition to the culture of your company, like to be the kind of person that says, hey, I don't answer email on Sunday 
I just don't because I, I choose to set that day aside and to worship God and to slow down. Not only because the scriptures say it wise, uh, the Mayo Clinic about 10 years ago said people that take a day off a week of work are far more productive in the long run, but that's not in my notes either. Or maybe even it's just not even the benefits of the Sabbath for your um, physiological well-being. Maybe it's just the fact that the Sabbath was always a distinct marker of a people who didn't look like the culture around them. People were supposed to look at Israel and say, look what they do on that day. Nothing at all except enjoy the goodness of God. And maybe yielding to that ethic in your life means that it's going to cost you something at work or it's going to cost you something in a relationship. And I think we can identify with Jeremiah in going, hey, listen, I made a commitment to you and you were so real at the beginning and I want to follow you, but the circumstances are not bending in my direction. They're bending away from my direction and I'm in a crisis. And what do we do in that crisis? Well, I don't think we do what Jeremiah is about to do. So let's look at 18b. It's just a few words where we see the mistake that he makes. Let me start at the beginning of 18. He says, why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Here it is. Will you be, like, will you be to me like a deceitful brook? like waters that fail. You see what he just said? He said, you did this, you are wrong, and this is your fault. Very striking imagery here. Stay with me. In chapter two, verse 13, he called God what? A fountain of living water. But what he just said in this passage is you are like a deceitful brook. What is he talking about? In the, in the ancient Near East and still today, a traveler, especially in the summer when water was scarce, would walk up to a wadi. A wadi is just a big hole, a cavern in the middle of a mountain where any rainwater would capture at the bottom. And therefore, it would be drinking water and that would be all kinds of good where drinking water wasn't a plentiful. And what Jeremiah is saying is you have become to me like walking up to a cavern where I think there's water and there's no water. And he calls God a deceiver and God says, uh-uh, you've crossed the line. You cannot call me that. Why? Well, first of all, because that's, the, that's his enemy's name. It's not his name, that's his enemy's name. The deceiver, the accuser, the enemy, he's the one that puts the mirage in front of us that leaves us perpetually thirsty. He's the one that puts the banquet in front of us that makes us think is gonna like taste delicious and fill us up and ends up tasting like trash and makes us hollow. The deceiver is the name he goes by and Yahweh won't have anything to do with that. He will not go by deceiver. And he will righteously call his son out and say, you have gone too far. I'm reminded in the Chronicles of Narnia where um, Aslan makes the exchange with the queen for Edmund's life. And the queen thinks that she's got the better end of the deal. And the queen, in a very snarky way, after Aslan leaves the tent, 
says, how do I know that you're gonna live up to your part of the bargain? And Aslan roars a ferocious roar because you don't question the character of God. He has to be good. He can't not be good. If he's not good, I'm not here. I'm not interested in any of this if he's not eternally, universally, perpetually good all the time. And Jeremiah crosses the line and he calls him a deceiver. And God says to the man who's called to call the nation of Israel to repent, he says, no, buddy, it's, it's your turn. You're going to repent. So again, we go back to this range of emotional expression that we have in the Bible, to be honest, before God. And you think about Jacob, who's permitted to wrestle with God through the night, to wrestle with God. You think about Hannah's prayer as she longs for a child, longs for a baby, and she prays with great anxiety and vexation of soul, moving her lips with words that nobody can understand. And both of those pictures are beautiful pictures of people wrestling in agony with God, deepening relationship as they're trying to make sense of their circumstances. But none of them go as far as Jeremiah. None of them say, you deceived me. And so God graciously has to correct course. And what does he do? Verse 19, he says, if you return, I'll restore you and you'll be able to stand in front of me, but you'll have to utter what is precious and not what is worthless. You'll be my mouth. And if you do that, they're gonna turn to you, but you're not gonna turn to them. What is he saying? You gotta repent. And if you do, I bless you, but you gotta say the good stuff, the gospel stuff, the true stuff, the eternal stuff not the foolish stuff, not the temporary stuff. You are more than what you presently feel, Jeremiah. And you gotta root yourself in a foundational bedrock. You gotta root yourself in my identity, in my character. And if you do, I'll continue my work through you and they're gonna turn to you. You're not gonna turn to them. He's basically saying that God's word will triumph over and against the word of the world because it's eternal and the world's isn't. It's temporary. It changes through the seasons and through the cultures. But God's is forever. And fortunately for us, Jeremiah does. This is a weak moment and he does repent and that's beautiful. And like Hannah, like David, like Jacob, in the Garden of Gethsemane, <clears throat> we also see another prayer moment where Jesus Matthew's account of this is fascinating. He says two times, guys, this is the son of God. He says two times as he is in agony, vexation of the soul, nearing to the point of death, he appeals to God over his circumstances and says, if this cup can pass, if you can change my circumstances, can we put that on the table? But nevertheless, your will be done. And so what we see in the life of Christ is a beautiful agony of the soul, a lament saying, I am experiencing something that is breaking me apart. And yet I will not yield to, towards circumstances that move ultimately in my favor. I will yield towards what you're asking of me. And in doing so, he accomplishes, he accomplishes more in that moment than I think I have the words or the time to describe, namely our salvation and the ability for us to gather here as a people marked by grace through faith to just say it simply. 
And in that moment, Jesus doesn't yield one inch to the deceiver. He laments and he agonizes. But he says, whatever your good will wants to accomplish, accomplish it for your namesake. You know what's interesting about just two kind of observations and then we're done. The first one is this. Um, Yeah, Jeremiah makes a mistake, but he makes a mistake like in the grind of relationship. And here's what I'm trying to say. He goes too far, but he's talking to God and he's able to course correct. He's able to receive mercy and course correct in their relationship because of eternal grace is more the better because of it. Here's what I think I'm trying to say. You know that the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. And so as I think about growing our spiritual muscle, I think I'm much more comfortable with those of us who wrestle in agony with God, even if we cross the line, than those of us who don't talk to God about our problems at all. And so as we wrestle in a real way before God, remember that we have this invitation. And I think Jeremiah's mistake is a mistake, but don't miss the longing for God that he has in his faithfulness there. And that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. And this may be a little harder to hear. God never apologizes for the hard things that he asks of us. Not in this story and not anywhere else in the scriptures. What you don't find in this story is the 2022 version of this story, which is like, hang on a second. Okay, Jeremiah, I see your truth. Okay. I see your, your truth. I see your perspective. I'm going to come. Okay. I, w- I was wrong. Forgive me, Jeremiah. There's, there's none of that. There's none of that. And so what this means is while he can be eternally merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, he never apologizes to Jeremiah. And by extension, he never apologizes to us for the things that he asks of us. Never. And why is that? I'm pretty sure it's because if we knew all the things that he presently knows into eternity— that we would see the real reason why he's asking us to go through the things that we're going through and why he has the expectations of us that he has. To put it another way, and this has been said before, just because there's not good reasons that you can think of for something doesn't mean that there aren't good reasons. And yet Jeremiah in this moment disbelieves the goodness of God and he has to repent And so when I think about us, I think about, first of all, what are our complaints presently? And I think we need to assess them honestly. That's the first thing. The secondly, what is our appeal? Is our appeal that God owes? Is our appeal, God, give me strength amidst this hard thing, super safe prayer? Is it, God, can you help me understand why I'm enduring this hard thing? Super safe prayer. God, can you show me your goodness amidst this hard thing? Because I'm having a hard time seeing it. Super safe prayer. But I think we have to assess the nature of our appeal. Because if it's, if it's, if it's an ingrained belief that you think God fundamentally owes you something, now we're on shaky ground. And if you've made Jeremiah's mistake, 
and you have disbelieved in the goodness of God, you have pronounced him to be a deceiver, then our way out of that is through repentance and asking him to help us and receive his grace so that we can utter the precious things and not the foolish things, believe the good things, the eternal things, and the true things. So like we've been doing um, this whole prayer series, I wanna give us some time to strengthen this muscle and I'll have two little discussion questions behind me on the screen. And so I wanna just give us some time for prayer and reflection. Um, These on the screen, there's two questions that I'm um, eager for us to spend some time in. And uh, the questions are this, what are, first one, what are your present laments? Share them honestly with God. He loves you and he's not scared to hear you complain. That's the first thing. The second thing, are you subtly believing the lie that God owes you something that he hasn't promised? And have you made Jeremiah's mistake and turned your lament into an accusation against God that he's not good? If so, repent and ask for forgiveness and for a renewed belief in his goodness. So let's take some time interacting with these questions. We'll set aside several minutes to do so. And in a few moments, I'll come back and lead us in taking the Lord's Supper or either me or Brett Wiseman will. Okay, love y'all. Let's go to prayer. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.